So I've got Adam Jacoby with me, who is the founder of My Vote and a massive democracy advocate. Do you mind me saying that about you? No, I think that's reasonably accurate. All right, great. So I came across your non-for-profit through a friend of mine and I was so thoroughly impressed with what it was about and where it was going. And I'm hoping that you can just tell our listeners a little bit about that. Happy to do that. Um, So, you know, probably close to a decade now ago, um, my co-founder Hamish Hughes and I um, were concerned about the way that our politics was going and the fact that, you know, we kept hearing people in the media talk about the democracy and we've got to protect the democracy And yet, when you actually look at what a democracy is, we don't really have one. So we started exploring um, and having conversations with thousands of of leaders around the world, from political leaders, former presidents and prime ministers, through to business leaders, community leaders, religious leaders, and then, you know, local leaders, the, you know, um, the Elders Council in Arnhem Land and others, uh, just to get a sense of how people felt about the quality of the democracy that they lived in and whether or not they thought that the way democracy was meant to serve them, you know, whether it was actually being served. What we found is that over a period of time across the world, there were a set of erosions that seemed to be consistent wherever we went, you know, independent of the kind of political system they had, the kind of government, which side of government, whether it was the left or right was in power. um, it, It didn't really matter. There were just some things in the system that didn't seem to work anymore pretty much everywhere we went. And so then we set ourselves the task of, well, you know, how would you reinvent the system? How would you rebuild it from scratch if you could, given that we're now in a technological age and, you know, when the system that we're using was was first conceived, um, they could not have imagined the world that we live in now. So, you know, how would you rebuild it to make it more inclusive and to, to deliver on the promise of democracy. And so that, that's kind of what we set out to do. You mentioned that there were, like, that our democracy wasn't working and that there were some issues within that. Can you expand on that a little bit further as to what exactly are the issues and why is our democracy not working? Yeah, look, look. Uh, so, so actually I would, I would phrase it slightly differently. I've just finished a book which is currently with a publisher. So the, the name of the book is Mythocracy. Um, and, and that'll give you a sense of where I'm up to in this conversation after more than a decade. Um, mm. So I, I am firmly of the belief, and I have now written a book, which hopefully you will all be able to read soon, um, that basically contends that democracy and politics are mutually exclusive, which is that they can't coexist. They, they are fundamentally deli- meant to be delivering different things. Politics is about the acquisition and winning of power, and democracy is about the release of power to the people. And so when you are engaged in politics, which is about having to win power, win an election and so forth, the set of behaviours that are required to have you win an election, and you only need to look at our current federal government, um, the Morrison government at the moment, to know that you you say things that are untrue, you misinform, um, you take money from donors that then compromises your policy positions, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things fly in the face of what a democracy is. A democracy is about the people to determine the policy direction of the country by having frank conversations that are based on a solutions orientation, which is to say that it doesn't matter what you might think needs to happen. What does the fact uh, enable us to understand so that we're able to make the most informed decision? And the truth is all of the parties, every party, um, 
is not really promising democracy. They're promising versions of ideology that we may find more or less attractive to us based upon our own worldview. But none of them are actually saying, no, 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 it doesn't matter whether you're left or right or green or blue or red. This is what the fact, this is what the facts tell us. And as a result of the facts, and given where we're trying to go, let's all vote about what the best direction is. Nobody's offering that, uh, which is why we don't actually have democracy. What we have is representative government under a Westminster system, but it's not democracy. Mm, okay. Wow. There are, like, that is that is a lot. It's a big conversation. Yeah, like, it's there's so much to think about and to unpack in there. I remember seeing something that Jackie Lambie did recently where she had to vote on, it was a bill about, I I can't remember the exact name of the bill, but it had something to do with refugees having mobile phone access in um, detention centres. And she had to vote on this issue and she asked her followers constituents members like what they thought she should do about this decision that she had to make and like it was the first time that I'd actually seen a politician seek information from people and take it on board and then talk about the information that they had received from yes that's getting a lot that's getting us a lot closer to what democracy should look like but the, the the real the real example of when we've seen it and i wrote a, i write about about this in my book is yeah. the like i'm i'm 47 in a few months and in mind and i've been politically involved and engaged and interested my entire life um, the only time in my life i've been asked my opinion on policy in advance in a meaningful nuanced way was yeah. around marriage and so the country was asked about marriage equality. Now, whether you agree with the way that Malcolm Turnbull decided to do it as a, you know, a non-compulsory postal vote, let's leave that argument to one side for a second. Yeah. Um, but we were a vote and we all came out and we all voted. But what's fascinating about this is that in six electorates across the country, members of parliament voted against what their constituents wanted in a significant majority. Three yeah. Labor, three Liberal. What's really interesting about this is if those representatives put their own personal views aside for the moment and voted with the majority, the vast majority constituency um, position, there would have been zero change to the vote because it would have been three and three. So it was an opportunity. It's the first time that we've gone out to the public and said, as your representative, as the person who's meant to represent the will of the people, I'm here asking you what your will is. And even though I've asked you, I've chosen to ignore it anyway. Mm. And like for me, I don't know how any of those six people can go back and ask for anybody to vote for them again, because the only time they ever had an opportunity to be heard, they were ignored anyway. Mm. Yeah, I totally see what you're saying. So how do we fix that then? Well, that's a very long process and it, and it takes a, a, a government or a, a, you know, a parliament made up of enough people who recognise that changes need to happen. So one of the challenges that we have um, is that Australia is a particularly conservative environment. So I've spoken about democracy with world leaders on four continents. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I go, people 
after the conversation invariably reach a point where they are prepared to concede that maybe where they are is not as democratic as they thought and mm. that maybe it's worth trialling some projects. Um, you can start very small. You can do very localised sort of tactical engagements where mm. you allow members of parliament or the parliament itself as a whole to go out to the community and start testing these conversations. But Australia is a particularly conservative place um, mm. and it is it, more conservative over the last 10 years um, and so we have very few people who are either prepared to step outside of their party uh, although there are a few that I'm talking to at the moment who are willing to trial um, sort of more democratic processes with their constituents but I'm not able to disclose who they are at this side at this point yeah. um, mainly because I've signed a confidentiality agreement um, but the other thing is that I think this election is slightly different. So my vote, you know, has been advancing the call for genuine independence for more than a decade. So this is, we've been actively involved in, in a whole variety of campaigns um, across the country this time around. And, and, you know, looking at the rise of the independence in this election, we were hoping this would have happened a little bit earlier. But I think what you will see is some traditional stronghold seats um, in this election, it'll be for the Liberal Party. In the next election, it'll probably be for the Labor Party. Um, that will be lost to independents who are prepared to listen to and engage their community in a meaningful way. Mm. And I'm I'm guessing the more we do that, or the more that um, communities see independents in that role and doing that really effectively, the more other communities who were a bit hesitant at the start will... Um, will see that as a good thing and start to jump on board, I'm guessing. You're correct in saying the more they see independence, the more it'll be easier to vote for independence. I think that that stands true, that reasoning. Yeah. Um, however, it's more than it just being an independent. I think once people see a representative who actually asks questions and then enacts the wishes of the people, people will go, well, why the hell would I vote for something other than that going forward? Why do I want to be ignored? the next three years i've got somebody who's saying they're going to listen to everything on every issue surely that's a better place to be than being in an environment where the government whichever side of politics they come from does whatever they want and i'm kind of inconsequential until eight weeks before the next election mm. and so like for me I, I gave a speech i'm not sure which speech you heard of mine but uh, i gave a speech in london at the world's top 50 innovators conference a couple of years ago it's probably three years ago now um and and i started with quotes from churchill right and so Churchill talks about, you know, democracy being the best form of government. But at the same time, he has other famous quotes where he actually says, you know, that you can't trust, effectively, you can't trust the will of the people. And so if you genuinely believe in democracy, then you, you cannot move away from the idea that people have to have a say. Um, the challenge, though, is how do you create an ecosystem in which the say that they have is the most informed say possible. So it's not about, you know, having open democracy where you go to the people on everything, but you don't inform them of the facts. You're allowed to misinform them. Um, they, you know, they don't have access to information. Um, that's actually a worse system. That would be a, a far worse system for us because that's really where you're getting into kind of Trumpism land where mm. people can have their own facts. They can do whatever they want. That's not what we're talking about. What my, my vote spent years designing a system that meant, for example, that we offered more than 
one one or two choices. So in Australia, it, it has for a long time tended to be Labor or Liberal. Yeah. Um, we always have four choices on every vote. Um, all of those choices are underpinned by peer-reviewed factual information. So it says we agree on the problem. We agree that, that science tells us man is, you know, contributing to climate change, but there are legitimate ways that you can then say, well, what do we do about that? So here are four different ways that we can look at this priority. So I'll give you an example. The last beta test vote we ever did in Australia, we ran on energy policy. Mm. And we asked the question of what, and we didn't market, you know, we didn't have any money. So we didn't do a market. We had about five and a half thousand plus people that voted on this thing. Yeah. We just put it in market. It was word of mouth. And the question that we asked was, how do you want your government to prioritize energy and energy investment? And the four choices, we always offer four choices. The four choices that we offered were um, price to the consumer. So bringing prices down. Yeah. And at the time that we ran that vote, Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten, that's all they were talking about was price to the consumer. Mm. Bring prices down, bring prices down, bring prices down because our energy is so expensive compared to the rest of the world. So we actually thought that would by far be the most popular choice. The second thing was international obligations. So Paris, Kyoto, you know, actually being part of a global community that says climate is a problem and we need to deal with it. The third option we gave was um, baseload energy for the economy. So if baseload energy becomes the most popular position, then things like nuclear energy can be part of the conversation. Because actually what we're saying is we just want to make sure we have enough energy from a supply side to be able to take care of the country. And then the fourth was carbon emissions reduction as a priority. Um, and so we put this poll in and we thought for sure price to the consumer would be the most popular. Mm. What came back shocked us um so where it ended up was baseload energy for the economy 11 percent mm-hmm. price to the consumer 24 percent international obligations 84 percent and 88 percent carbon emissions reduction as a priority okay. so the people Right, and the way, the way, and you're going. Hang on, those things don't add up to 100. That doesn't make sense. No, they don't. Yeah, the reason I'm that like, happens, I don't know where your maths is there, but it's bad. The, the reason that happens is the my vote system, which is why I believe it's the best in the world, um, does not ask you to vote for one over another because you lose the nuance of what the constituency wants. What we say is here are four choices that are all based on fact, and by the way, here are the research reports that show you that it's all based on fact, and they are free for you to look at as much as you want. So we haven't had a vote. We didn't put a single beta test into the market with less than 150 research papers that were free for people to read if they wanted to. Now, the reality is what we know is no more than 2% of people actually open those research papers. But what we require under the MyVote voting model is that what we have is what's called an information pact. So for each of the four choices, there is maybe two and a half to three minutes worth of dot point reading that gives you the top line dot points that you need to understand about that particular pathway, that option. Yeah. And if you open all four voting information packs, your voting light never goes on. Because what we say is if you choose not to inform yourself, we choose not to listen to you. Because that's actually the citizen's responsibility in a democracy. A democracy is a responsibility in two parts. The first part is the responsibility for the citizen to understand the ramifications of their vote. And the second part is for the representative 
to actually represent the majority view. We don't have either of those two things in our system. Mm, we really don't. I agree. And so what we had was this interesting situation. So I, shortly after that vote took place, I was in Canberra um, just prior to the last election in Bill Shorten's office, um, meeting with him about democracy in general uh, and what I was hoping if the Labor government would have won, they would have enacted to empower and strengthen the democracy. It was a fascinating conversation, but that's for another, that's for another radio show. Um, <laughs> and, but, we, but I brought up this vote and, and I actually said at the time, you know, what do, you know, we ran this vote, energy policy, here were the four choices. What do you think, you know, how do you think it fell? How many people do you think price to the consumer was their priority, given that that's all you and the government are talking about? Mm. And he said, I bet 25%. And I said, very good. It was 24%. And he was really proud of himself. And he sat up in his seat. He was like, yeah, <laughs> look how good. And I said, but this is part of the problem. This is the part of the problem for you. And it's part of the problem with the Liberal Party. At the end of the day, you know what we want as a, as a community and you won't deliver it anyway because it doesn't meet with your political requirements because it will lose you seats in Queensland and if it loses you seats in Queensland, you're not prepared to have the policy. And that's the distinction between politics and democracy. Yeah, they, they really just want to hold on to power. Yeah, the system is designed to win and then maintain power so that you can prosecute your ideology, whatever that might be. Mm. Um, and if that means, and this is, it's, so it's not even about the voting. Like, this is another myth, that, and, and I go into this in detail in the book. You know, an election is not a democracy. We keep, it drives me crazy. I love the ABC. I listen to them religiously all day, every day. But, you know, if I hear another bloody ABC presenter talk to me about, um, you know, the democracy and how great this election is, a show of the strength of our democracy, an election is not that. Mm. An election is an opportunity to prosecute misinformation based upon an ideological position that people will then vote for. If it were a democracy, we would actually be able to scrutinise the numbers, be able to scrutinise the policies. We would have uh, reporters who were able to actually press hard questions on candidates. We would have debates on the public broadcaster for free so everybody could hear them. Um, you know, it would be a very different thing to this. It would be a situation where you weren't allowed to lie in your campaign. You weren't yeah. allowed to have mis and lying in your advertising, um, but we don't have those things. Also, there's zero ramifications for a politician walk in campaign mode to actually have to deliver on anything that they say. So yeah. there's, no, there's actually nothing in the constitution, there's nothing in parliament that says, if you said it on the campaign, you now have to deliver it. And I think, you know, mm. Scott Morrison is now feeling some of that pain with his ICAC promise because people are going, hey, you know what? That was a really important issue for us. And you made it a firm policy promise and you just did not deliver it. And we're going to punish you for that. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's very rare that that actually happens. And the problem is that we only, we only have the opportunity to create recourse every three years. Under a genuine democracy where you were going to the people, on an issue-by-issue issue basis, you can start to hold people to account. Okay. But what would that look like though? Me personally, I think a three-year election cycle is too short. Like I think we need to give people longer to be able to create policies that are long-lasting and to be able to make meaningful change in their position so that it's not just about an election cycle. 
I don't disagree with that at all, but not under the way the current system works. So if you had an, a genuinely representative system and you had truth in advertising and you had truth in media laws and you had a less consolidated media ecosystem so that we actually heard more voices and more choices and more ideas rather than just the same old party ideas over and over again and the ability for one media baron to control more than 50% of the media market, mm. then I would say I, I agree. Longer terms are better because we can take a much longer view to creating good policy. But if you gave the existing system with the existing manipulations and democratic erosions more time, it would be catastrophic. Mm, Yeah, I agree. It really would be. Like, I'd like to know, for governments to be able to govern well, what do you think they need to do? Okay, so I think there are five critical things, right? Um, We need transparency. We need accountability, we need truth, we need compassion, and we need a solutions orientation. So they need to be there with an intention to fix problems. They need to actually empathise with the community about how those problems are affecting people. They need to commit to the science and the fact rather than their ideological position. They need to be open and transparent on how they're making decisions and what information that they're looking at to make those decisions and who's giving the money around those decisions. Uh, And then they need to be held accountable for those decisions. So if we start to see improvement in those five areas, you start to get a much better quality politician. Yeah. The other thing you need to ban all corporate donations, all corporate donations. Yeah, totally. So this this thing about real time donations is a a nonsense. There should be, um, Every candidate should get the same amount of money. Um, the party should be funded publicly. Um, we should have very strict advertising rules around um, politicians and elections. Um, there should be a very strict set of debate rules and one must be on the national broadcaster free so all Australians can see it. Um, you know, there are, th- there are some process things we get really fundamentally wrong and then there are a whole lot of philosophical things we get fundamentally wrong. Yeah. Um, and that's part of why it's taking so long to fix and it's so hard to fix. And, you know, when, when Hamish and I started doing this a decade ago, um, people used to come to us and say, uh, you know, how long do you reckon it'll take to fix this problem? And I said, it won't be me. It'll be my kids' kids who are still working yeah. on this problem. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this is a marathon. This doesn't get changed easily and quickly because if it did, it would have been done already. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree. Our political system is set up for two parties I hear this all the time I actually don't think it's necessarily true but I do hear it all the time that our political system is set up for two parties to um operate government in like in existence together with the cabinet um and the majority being the government and then a shadow cabinet being the opposition who their job is supposed to be to keep the government to like to keep the government accountable So I hear this as being a reason why if we start voting in a bunch of independents, it's going to make pretty much our government inoperable. Do you agree with that or? Absolute crap. The idea that people who are saying we need action on climate, we need action on integrity and we need gender equality are somehow going to make the situation chaotic. It's just, it's pure propaganda. It's rubbish. Mm -hmm. Um, so for a start, most other countries around the world have multiple parties in their government and they function a hell of a lot better than we do. Um, the other thing is if you, this idea that it's a two-party system 
is factually incorrect anyway, because the Liberal Party cannot form government on its own. It has to form government with the National Party. It can't win enough seats and the National Party can't win enough seats, which is why the coalition is in power. So there's already three seats at the table before you start including the Greens and others. Um, so this idea that it's Labor and Liberal is a furphy anyway, because the Liberals can't win enough seats to govern. Um, the only party that can win enough seats, to, and I don't vote for them, but the only party who can win enough seats to govern in a majority is the Labor Party. They're the only ones. Um, whether they will or not is a different conversation, but they're the only ones who actually can. Um, in terms of the, glo you know, the global footprint and the way that things have worked, you only need to look at the Gillard government, which was a minority government. Huge amount of legislation passed, really meaningful legislation passed, and that was with three or four really loud, opinionated, but incredibly committed independents. Mm. Um, and they held the government to a different standard and they made policy better. And I personally believe that the, the teal independents this time around will win between three and five seats. Mm. I'm actually really excited for this change and I'm really excited to see definitely like a better mm. way of government and I do think that having people who are there to represent their community and listen to their community is, is, a, is definitely a step in the right direction. I just, I worry about how hard that's going to be for people because of the, our current political environment. I did a bit of research this week on whether there was any legislation about government advertising and stuff like that. And there was like federal legislation in the past, but they took it away because apparently it just wasn't effective and it wasn't working and things like that. And there's some state legislation, but it's all different in each state. There's nothing that puts it at a high standard. It's just, you know, they're not allowed to mislead but I've never really seen any black politician be picked up on it. So well, there's, there's nobody who's actually responsible or accountable for looking after it in a, in a functioning system. And look, I can't stand the Australian electoral commission. I think they're utterly useless. However, they have the potential to be probably the most important institution in the country. If they were given more powers, greater remit and, and could actually hold parties to account but they're completely impotent because the system doesn't allow them to police anything. And so there is nobody to police the, the parties. I think they did police like Pauline Hanson's ads this election, like they told her that she had to take them down or something. So, so again, you, the, you have to take them down is different to there being actual ramifications for breaches. Mm. So, and again, it, it, everything is retrospective. So we're, we're reactive to these problems rather than proactive. So it's, you know, part of the reason the police force works is you see police cars around and so you don't speed, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is there is no watchdog. So parties will try and get away with whatever they can. And even if, you know, the, the calculation is even if we can have that misleading sign in the market for five days before somebody makes us take it down, how many people can we convince in those five days to do something that was based on a lie? And because there's no proactive mechanism to stop them, everything we do is reactionary. And if nobody complains about that misleading sign being there, then the AEC doesn't know to tell people to take it down, right? Mm -hmm. and, and when they do tell them to take it down, how long does it take for them to take it down? And if mm -hmm. they don't take it down, what recourse is there in real terms? And there's none, right? There and so, so... The sign this was effective, part, the sign still got them elected. Like, correct. Yeah. This is part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that 
Um, you know, we as a community need to demand more. We need to demand more from everybody in the system. We need to demand more from the AEC. We need to demand more from the politicians. We absolutely need to demand more from the political media who are an abomination in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every part of the process, we as citizens are getting let down because everybody talks about democracy but doesn't understand democracy and because they don't understand where the erosion points are happening they are completely incapable of protecting us from those erosions yeah i absolutely agree Mm. wow god there's just so much to think about isn't there it's actually like a little bit scary to um think that really like we were sold this wonderful democracy we would we've been told all of our lives that it's something that we are worth fighting for and that you know it's being held up every day as being this fabulous beautiful thing when in reality it's there's just way too much wrong with it and it's not actually um working the way that it should and it is a big job to try and change it and fix it it is a big job, but we, we, we also shouldn't be, I mean, we should be, in my opinion, you know, raging mad about this, but we also <laughs> need kind of, um, we need to be kind enough to accept and understand that it's not that the system never worked as a representative model, because for a very long time it did work and there was no technological solution that enabled a member of parliament in very quick short order to understand what all of their tens of thousands of constituents wanted right Mm, but now we have that technology and so you know the world has changed dramatically from the time this system was put into place what we now need to do is bring the system up to where the rest of society has reached and say we can actually do it better there's no reason not to do it better we have the capability we have the technology it seems like we have the will to make it better so let's make it better. But, you know, you've got to remember these two parties, the two major parties, have enacted legislation in the last few years to make it more difficult for independents to get elected, to make it more difficult for minor parties to get elected. And they are the only ones who are in the position to be able to do that because they control both houses of parliament. And so they're able to actually create disadvantage to change the system. And so I know what change legislation is- are you talking about there? So there's legislation that has made it harder to register, um, harder to, you have to have a certain number of members before you can be considered a party and get on the ballot. There's stuff around uh, donations that makes it harder for independents to get elected. So, you you know, they have deliberately gone out of their way to try and sabotage competition, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about the Teals is that the Teals have been created with a group of people who understand what those hurdles were and have approached the problem head on with those hurdles and have said all right if you want to make it hey if we need 500 members instead of 100 now we'll get the 500 members if we need x amount of money instead of y money we'll have that amount of money so we will match you with whatever hurdle you're trying to put in place Mm. we will see that and we will we will go over it but but what's you know fascinating for us as a society is that you know change is hard for everybody in everything it's not just politics right change Mm. is hard but this is kind of the way i think about it We are sitting in a burning house right now and it might be scary to go outside. You might've been in that room for a fucking long time and not wanted to go outside and that's your comfortable spot and you like it the way it is and that's where your chair is and that's where the, but the house is burning down. At some point you've got to get out because if you don't get out, it's going to be the end. And so we, we need to just accept that 
it is not working the way that it's meant to be working. Change is scary, but the alternative, which is not to change, is actually much scarier. Yep. It's it's crazy. It's really crazy. You were talking about um, how you've always been politically, like, involved and stuff, and it's actually, like, a new thing for me. Like, I didn't realise kind of how important it was until... I started running my own business and then um, my marriage broke down and that then made me realise, hey, like, why? Like, where is this going? Like, what is, what's society all about? And then, um, yeah, next thing I know, I'm enrolled in a law and politics degree. (laughs) I hear people all the time say to me, I'm not really into politics. And you go, "Do do you need a hospital ever? Do your kids go to school? Do you ever need the law courts? You know? That's all politics. Everything about the way your life works, your world works, is based upon people who make decisions on your behalf. And you not being involved lets them do whatever the hell they want and you have no say in it. And that, for me, that's why I, ultimately why I got into this and started my vote in the first place because, uh, you know, I became a father. I now have five kids. Then I had one kid. Um, and I was just thinking about the world that at that time he was going to grow up in. Um, And I just thought, you know what? I can't, as a parent, allow a situation where, you know, I have a lot of privilege. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. I'm a a white middle-aged man that was born into an upper middle-class family. I'm heterosexual and I live in one of the richest countries in the world. I pretty much, the lottery of life, right? Not that I'm more deserving than anybody else. Just everything is easier for me because of that, right? And Mm -hmm. I had no control over any of those things. And my voice is no more important than anybody else's voice because of those things. But because I have that privilege and I then think about the world that my kids are going to grow up in, you go, I can't in good conscience with all of that privilege sitting there, allow a system that will not listen to my kids on what they want for the world that they're going to have to live in. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. And so, you know, I sat down with a like-minded soul, Hamish Hughes, who's one of the smartest people on the planet, and, and we just said, we're going to do something about this. Yeah. And yeah, I totally agree that there is a a huge amount of privilege to be able to just ignore politics. Like if you feel like it doesn't affect you, if you feel like it doesn't really matter and it's not important to you, then you are sitting with a ton of privilege that you probably need to reassess and figure out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. And that's, to be honest, that's one of the things that I find um, a bit annoying about the, the teal independent narrative against them is this, this idea that, oh, you know, they're just these entitled people who are, who are you know, a whole lot of rich white women going into rich white seats. And that's it's not so untrue. hypocritical. That's, that's <laughs> absolutely true. But at the same time, those rich white women probably didn't need to put themselves through this and they've chosen to get attacked mercilessly for the last several months because mm-hmm. they recognise something needs to change the system and if people like them don't change the system, it will never be changed. Yeah. And yeah. I... I've spoken to half of them already, personally, one-on-one. So I know that that's what they're thinking and I know how genuine they are about the change that they're trying to create. Wow. I mean, honestly, like I could I could talk to you about this for hours. I really could. <laughs> um, I think we covered a lot of ground in a short space of time. Oh, yeah, we definitely did. I hope it stimulates some thought and conversation amongst uh, the listeners. I hope so too. That's the plan. We'll see how we go. Let's wait and see what happens in the next nine days, shall we? Thanks yeah. so much for talking to me. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, pleasure was all mine. Thanks for inviting me.